Welcome in, everyone. Hey, everybody. This is Everything Sucks. Let's fix it. Episode 16. My name is Ben Mare. My name is Anthony Buono. Uh, today is September 12th, 2023, and we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah, a lot of big news already happened today, so let's get into it. We had the impeachment inquiry has been officially announced by Kevin McCarthy. Now, what's the, what makes this impeachment inquiry special is that they are not doing a vote to open it. Mm. Speaker McCarthy is utilizing his own power to open up the impeachment inquiry, led by uh, Representative Comer and Representative Jim Justice. Those are the two guys who are going to be uh, steamrolling this stuff. Now, obviously, there's a lot of criticism from the left. Um, there are people who are suggesting that there isn't enough evidence to impeach him. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's kind of difficult when it's all very nebulous. And I, even when they go on the Fox News Sunday shows, they really don't have answers as to what they're being impeached for. Yeah, the Republicans themselves can't articulate what Biden has done wrong. Right. And it, it, it's the best way to observe what's going on in the impeachment inquiry is not a Joe Biden impeachment scandal. It's more about a battle inside the Republican Party for what the Republican Party wants to do and what it stands for. Yeah, it's kind of, we need to, we want to paint the blue side the same way that they've been painting the red side. Yes. Right? So Trump has actually been very involved in the impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. The former president has been in tight communication with Elise Stefanik. She's a representative from uh, upstate New York, and she is the third top leader of the House Republican Caucus. Um, and she was the first Republican to come out in favor of opening up an impeachment inquiry. So this is Elise Stefanik tying herself to Trump wrapping him around her finger mm -hmm. and making sure that she is on his side. Totally. Um, on top of this, Trump has also been meeting with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is an ally of Kevin McCarthy. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy have gotten very close yeah. over the last few months. And they're both really under the Trump umbrella. Like McCarthy rose up to this position because of his ties to Trump in large part. Yes. So now what makes Speaker McCarthy's impeachment inquiry special is that he's not calling a vote on it. He's just opening it. Now, this is very similar to what the Democrats did with the Ukraine, with the first Trump impeachment. Mm -hmm. They opened up an impeachment inquiry without a vote. So Kevin McCarthy is repeating that playbook. Um, you can call it hypocrisy because at the time, Kevin McCarthy said that this was a ridiculous, that we need to have the vote. But it's political games. It's maneuvering. They're going to say whatever's better for their side. We should come to expect that stuff. Whether they're on the right or on the left, that's how people are going to act when they're in politics. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but now, without a vote being necessary... A lot of the moderate Republicans are sighing with relief because they don't have to stick a position on this. A lot, the way that the Republicans were able to take the House was by winning districts that Biden won by five, 10 points. Yep. So, how is that guy who is in a district that voted for Biden by five or 10 points supposed to go back to his constituents and say, yeah, I voted to open an inquiry to impeach Joe Biden with very minimal evidence? He can't. So, Kevin McCarthy is bailing him out. Yeah, last week we talked about how we thought that impeachment will kind of be a good thing for Biden. And the thinking there is that people near the center, they're tired of this political gamesmanship. They're tired of persecuting the other side to an extent that seems unreasonable. So these moderates who are dependent on those voters near the center they need to be able to keep their hands clean of this. Yeah, and now they're going to be able to. And this is exactly what Kevin McCarthy, this is the best I think this is the best outcome for Kevin McCarthy because he doesn't have to piss off his moderates by making them vote on it. Totally. And he thinks that this is going to placate the base, but 
We're going to get to that because I don't think it's going to work. No, they're too aware. Yeah, they're too aware. They know the game he's playing. Yeah. So the House cannot impeach and convict the president all on their own. They can impeach the president, but then the Senate has to convict. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to, okay, well, what are the Republicans at the Senate thinking about this? The truth is the senators are not taking the impeachment seriously at all. Um, Shelley Moore Capito, she is a Republican leader, uh, senator from West Virginia, and she said, I don't know where they're going with this. I don't know what the evidence is. Um, this is a top Republican senator, and she serves as the number five leader in the GOP. You can't even, you don't have enough, you don't have enough evidence to convince your GOP leadership to convict. Yeah. Where is this going? Like, where, what do they, what else do they need from the impeachment inquiry that they don't already have? Yeah. And I think even more interesting here is that she's saying this publicly. Right. Right. Cause this means, I think there are going to be a lot of members of the House in the GOP that feel the same way. Right. They, they're like, they don't know where the evidence is. They've already spoken publicly and like alluded even on Fox News and other programs that, it doesn't quite seem like there is hard evidence to support the case. Yeah. Right. And so if she's saying this publicly now, it's kind of setting the stage for we Senate Republicans are never going to vote for this. Right. And it honestly, it's like, to me, if you, it's like the Senate Republicans are trying to put an arm distance to the house Republicans. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, listen, those are the crazy guys over there. Yep. Just let them be. It'll all work out. They'll all come around, but you know, they're just the kids playing in the playground. Like, don't really bother with them. Yeah, it's like, like don't, don't bother with them yeah. and don't take them too seriously. Right. Like, we're, that's not the party. We're the party. Okay, yeah. don't worry about those kids playing around. They're just children, mm-hmm. right? That's the vibe I get. Which also tracks for me because of Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, his historic stance against Trump, right? right? On, on a lot of issues, most importantly, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, but not wanting the Trump legacy of the Republican Party to last and persist through time. Exactly. And now this is when it gets interesting, because like we said, this impeachment, you need to look at it through a political calculation. That's the only way any of this makes sense. They're Mm -hmm. trying to impeach somebody with no evidence. Impeachment is a political negative for the party who does it. We Mm -hmm. talked about that last week. When Bill Clinton got impeached, he got way more popular, right? So they're why are they doing this? Well, the answer is to placate their base and to try and avoid a government shutdown. Now, this government shutdown could be coming within the couple weeks here in the coming months. And they need the House needs to pass some spending bills to fund the functions of government. Mm-hmm. Now, Kevin McCarthy thinks, okay, well, I can give them I can give the hard right the impeachment inquiry, and in response, they'll let me pass a continuing resolution that'll let me kick the can down the road while we keep on negotiating so we don't shut the government down. Mm-hmm. That That's the game. Yeah. And that's not just my opinion. This is Joni Ernst. She is the senator from Iowa. It sounds like that's the deal in order to start moving some of these spending bills. I think that will help. They need to find a way to come together. If it's part of the negotiations, then so be it. So that's, again, Senate Republicans out in the open. Yeah, the impeachment that's being opened up, it's just a part of the spending bill negotiations. That's all it is. I must say, big picture, it does make this all seem kind of silly. It's it, silly. It feels like it's a mockery of our system. Yeah. Right? If we're if we're now impeaching presidents as part of the negotiations just to allow the government to function, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the 
current event we did a few weeks back where Fitch downgraded the validity of U.S. bonds. It's like, this is why. Yeah. Because this is what our government has been reduced to. Yeah. This is exactly why the government... Listen, are you saying that we can't fund the military until we impeach the president? Is that where we're at? Is yeah. that what we're doing like, here? Like, it so obviously makes no logical sense that it is purely political gamesmanship. Yes. And... Listen, Kevin McCarthy is in a rock and hard place because what is he supposed to do? Yeah. I don't know what you're supposed to do. This is probably his best option out of all the things he could have done. This is probably the best one. Like in a way, even as a, as a Democrat, like I'm looking at McCarthy and I'm saying he's, he's kind of the good guy here because at least he's doing whatever he can to keep the government functioning. Yeah. Like Kevin McCarthy isn't an, an idiot. He doesn't think that Biden's actually going to get impeached. Right. Right. He's just, he's, trying to find whatever tiny narrow lane might be there for him to actually let the government serve the people. That's what I'm saying. Like he knows, like, look, impeachment is going to raise Joe Biden's approval rating Mm -hmm. because that's what historically happens. It happened with Trump too. When he got impeached for the Ukraine stuff that helped him. Now, McCarthy, you know what else will help Biden's approval rating a lot more? If the government shuts down. (laughs) <laughs> if the government shuts down, that raises Biden's approval rating a lot more because everyone knows it's the Republicans' fault. So he needs. Do to you think everyone will know? I think everyone will know. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think I think I'm pretty convinced that most people will know. Um, At I, least like an interested independent voter yeah. will know. I think so. When people were asked who was responsible for your student loans not getting canceled mm-hmm. for that ten thousand number. 92% of people said Republicans. Okay. Only 8% of people said Democrats. So that means people are cognizant of some of the actions going on. That's good. Right? Yeah. Um, but now, let's go deeper into this shutdown right now. So Kevin McCarthy has made the calculation. All right. It's better for me to open the impeachment inquiry than to shut down the government. But is opening the impeachment inquiry going to be enough to get these hard-right Republicans? I think the answer is a hard no. No. Um, Matt Gates took to the floor today. Uh, Matt Gates is a congressman from northern Florida, and he is hardest right, but I don't know if right really means anything with him. He's the biggest contrarian in the Republican Party. Yeah. Right? I don't know if he's, like, really on the right. I don't really know what that means. He, he's just he's just populist. Right. He's just populist. Right. right. So he came out, and he's like, Kevin McCarthy, you're doing this whole impeachment thing just to fool us. You know, this is all a game for you, and you're just trying to make us fall along and fall in line with you, and it's not going to work. And then he went off about all the things. He's like, we gave you the speakership under certain specific conditions, Mm -hmm. lower spending, put a vote up for term limits. We gave you specific things that we wanted you to do, and you didn't do them. And now, if you work with the Democrats and you pass a changing resolution, we will shut down the government. And Matt Gates is online with shutting down the government. We have Matt Rosendale okay with shutting down the government. We have Bob Good okay with shutting down the government. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Bobert is okay with shutting down the government. Yeah. You only need one more. I'm sure they're there. And Matt Rosendale, you might remember him. He's running against John Tester yes. in Montana. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. I, I have two. So, two things come to my mind. One, kind of respect Gates because by speaking up, like he he is holding true to some kind of values. True. Right? He's not allowing this move by McCarthy. Like he's calling out that McCarthy is obviously making this movie and he's be like, No, I said I wanted you to reduce spending. I said I wanted you to do all these other things. Mm-hmm. Do them. Don't yeah. placate me. Um the other thing I say is you you mention a few representatives who are going to be okay with shutting down the government. That's of course assuming that no Democrats Vote with the Republicans. Right. So? 
So now do Matt, any right? I think they do. I think they do too. They, and then I, I Gates, hope they do. Right. I hope they do. I want them to. Yeah. This is a moment where I'm a bipartisan guy. Okay. I would love for Democrats and Republicans to come together and not shut down our government. Please. That would be great. Yes. So, but Matt Gates says something interesting in his speech today. He said. McCarthy, you are complicit in the Biden Jeffries McCarthy government. And he loops Kevin McCarthy in with um, House Minority Leader, um, Democrat Leader Hakeem Jeffries and Joe Biden. And now, I mean, McCarthy's just getting tarred and feathered. It really, so it feels like such a stark contrast to Bernie Sanders telling Cornell West to stop his campaign and instead coming out to support Joe Biden. Yeah. Like the amount that this pocket of quote unquote Republicans has gone to the right to throw McCarthy, who we just talked about is a Trump ally, right? Yeah. Who got Hardcore. into his position because of Trump throwing him under the bus is like, it's almost like they're becoming their own party. Yeah. That, that that's what it feels like. Like the House Freedom Caucus has, has its own values now, right? They're anti-Ukraine funding. They don't want any more dimes to go to Ukraine, mm-hmm. right? Um, they are in favor of completely eliminating the Department of Education. You know, that's the type of spending cuts that they want to get at. They want to limit WIC, as we've talked about. Um, but now, not this isn't just Gates. Matt Rosendale, he says that this is in regarding to the impeachment. He's trying to intimidate us. It's called a distraction. And guess what? I will not be intimidated by such distractions. Oh, man. That's hardcore. Yeah. That's a hardcore. That's hardcore. So now McCarthy's office is saying that he needs to pass a short-term continuing resolution or stops um, or spending stopgap of a few months. So he just needs to kick the can down the road a few months. He can get his ducks in order, okay? And he says that it might be necessary to give Republicans more leverage in the spending negotiations, okay? Now we have Don Bacon from Nebraska. He's a moderate. He says that there's 180 of us that will vote for the speaker 15 more times if we've got to. So we just can't be held hostages to a threat. We're talking about a small minority who want to control the conference. Um, and the moderates are now fighting back. Yeah. You know, good for them. Yeah. And good for them as yeah. they should. They, he's completely right. They should not allow this minority to control. The con- We're talking about like 30, 25, um, 25 I mean, representatives of a, of a body that is 435. Yeah. And it's just, it's just not, it's, it's ridiculous. Absurd. And so Eric Cantor, um, he was in the house leadership back in 2010, 11, 12, 13. And, uh, he it, put a warning out to Kevin McCarthy during an interview in Politico. He said like, don't mess around with government shutdowns. It does not play well for you on the federal level. If you don't have a plan, because if you go into a shutdown and you don't have a plan to get what you want, eventually all the leaders and all the bureaucrats take over all your desires and they just get the government back open and you get nothing and you look like a fool. And so he says, he's like, what do you guys want? Do you want reductions in spending? Do you want more money for the border? Do you want no money to Ukraine? Do you want impeachment? Eric Cantor's like, I don't know what they want. That's a little disingenuous because Matt Gates pretty explicitly said exactly what they want. Well, Matt Gates said what they want, but I guess what I would interpret this as saying is what do you as a Republican caucus or like republican coalition true which i don't know if there is anything except reductions in spending levels right that's all that seems pretty common right that seems like the common thing but now this is hard because mccarthy has already negotiated with biden 
for spending levels during the debt ceiling negotiation. So now he's going to be going back on all that stuff. The Senate has moved past that. Mm -hmm. The Senate is like, no, that's what it is, guys. Again, let the House do their thing. Let them play around in the sandbox. Who gives a shit? Yeah. You know, whatever they pass, we're just going to change anyway and send it back to them to match what we negotiated months ago. Yeah. That's the game going on. So Kevin McCarthy, he I, I he looks to me like a babysitter. Totally. Like like a babysitter who's tearing his fucking hair out yeah. right now. I it's so when I hear reduction of spending levels, I think, okay, but then you think about what are you actually reducing? Like you, you get down even a little bit granular and it's like, oh, okay, so we have to we have to take food aid from pregnant families. <laughs> or we have to not support Ukraine or we have to uh, take money away from IRS enforcement, which I know any Republican listening to this is probably going to be thrilled about. But we're about to talk about why IRS funding is way more important. Way than more you important than you even know. Um, so yes, big big picture. I reduction in spending levels sounds great. I think it sounds great. We have talked about on the show many times that we don't like the debt. Our interest payments are the biggest item on our balance sheet. That's absurd. It's a nightmare. It's ridiculous. We don't want that either. The problem is the re- the reason we're the reason we don't like those interest payments is because we want to use that money to pay for other things to support the population. Absolutely. But it doesn't make any sense to not do those things right now to support the population. In the interest of just lowering those interest payments, right? If like, why would we just worry about us later when we know we have these problems now that we have to solve? It makes right. no sense. It makes no sense, and I genuinely don't have a long-term solution to the debt. No, you can't cut your way to prosperity, guys. It's no. just the truth. You can't cut your way to prosperity. You need to invest. You have to play the long game. You have to tax your and way. You have to <laughs> tax the rich people. I'm literally. I'm going to be on this every single week. Every single week. <laughs> yeah. Tax. Please. Please. Tax. You know what's so funny? This is a little bit of a tangent, but I think this is important. I read an interesting article in the New Statesman, and they suggested that we need to rethink the way that we do taxes. Um, and he attacks income taxes as a concept. And the reason he does this is because the decade of quantitative easing that we've had, where interest rates were so low, you could just borrow money out your ass, right? It raised asset prices so high. That people who are sitting on massive amounts of assets don't get taxed. And he calls Mm. for a shift in our tax system away from income because we want to encourage income and towards wealth because we want to discourage hoarding. Mm. And, you know, we've talked about wealth taxes before on the show, but I've never thought about it as an alternative or a, like, response to low interest rates and rising asset prices is a wealth taxes necessity after that. I like that a lot. And I think you could really write a nuanced law to maybe exempt taxation on those those assets, exempt taxation on like retirement accounts, stuff like that, so that people still can hold on to their own safety nets, but not just become uber rich. Right. 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 I'm talking about like the $100 million brokerage accounts. I'm not talking about your IRA. Okay? Yeah. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. But exactly. I think that's important because we want to encourage income. Why would we tax income more than we tax wealth? Yes. We don't want to encourage hoarding. We want the money to move around. You know, we want it to sh- change hands. Earned income tax credit, right? We're huge supporters. Massive. We're, we're massive supporters of the child tax credit, which we'll talk about. Yes. But we went off on a massive tangent. Let's 
circle back. We Ben <laughs> did a little bit of a mini deep dive. Okay. I was going to go to this. Okay. I don't know if maybe we should go to Germany first because oh, Germany true. is dealing with their own debt problems, yes. right? And there's a serious there's a kind of similar problem going on in their government. Yes, it's regardless. very similar. Yeah. Um so we can go there first. Yes. Okay. Good call. Good call. Yeah. So the current German coalition is made up of three parties. The German Greens, the environmentalist, liberal, kind of center-left party. Then you have the FDP, the Freedom for Deutschland party. They are like the neoliberal, classical liberal, um, just free market laissez-faire types. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Social Democratic Party, the SPD. Um, and they are like the historic Democratic Socialist Party, Social Democratic Party, not as socialist as they used to be, um, but socially democratic in the way that you would think about like AOC or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the coalition. They call it the traffic light coalition because it's yellow, green, red. Um, it's a very interesting government coalition because all three of them have very different priorities, right? The Greens is to change change our environmental and fuel systems so that the environment is safe the socialists um social democrats whatever i'm american okay you're red it's all the same to me the social democrats they are really in favor of labor and stuff like that and then you have the sdp spd no 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 i'm sorry fdp the freedom for deutschland party the liberals they want to limit all spending end of story yes they're like the they're like the you know the strict dad who gives you an allowance to the social democrats who want to spend everything. Oh my god, I'm thinking about my friends who like fit under that umbrella. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So that's that's this dynamic. So the FDP was very smart. When they formed their government, they were able to get their way and become the finance minister of the governing coalition. So the finance minister, um, who is a member of the FDP, is presenting a budget that will cut spending for the first time since 2019. Um, the spending level will still be above what they had in 2019, but this, it's coming back down closer to that number. So uh, Lindner, 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 he's the uh, finance minister. Christian Lindner. Thank you. He, uh, his draft budget comprises 445 billion euros next year around the thir- around 30 billion less euros than in 2023 but still 90 billion more euros than in 2019 um so the all departments will have to make some savings compared to this year okay mm-hmm. um some of the things that are not getting touched in this which i think is actually really really interesting is he's not touching the department of labor He's not touching the Department of Welfare. Okay. And he's slightly raising the Department of Defense budget. Okay. Those are the things that are getting um, raised. The main thing he's cutting is child tax credits. Mm. That's the main thing that's getting cut. But I don't want to sound like a conservative here. It's not the worst way it could get cut. So this is how child tax credits are getting cut in Germany. Okay. Um, Only households that have an income of $150,000 uh, 150,000 euros or more would be affected by the cuts and will no longer have access to the child raising allowance. Mm. I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah. I, again, I mean, compared to a Department of Labor and when and the Department of Defense when there's a war in Ukraine, uh, I do think child tax credits are more of a nice to have. Right. Yeah. Right. Especially for people who make over 150,000 euros. Yes. Right. So that's why it's kind of okay. 
But the left isn't happy about this. The the left party, which is outside of the Social Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, the left party who's not currently in the government is mad that there are budget cuts at all, considering that the defense budget is getting raised by 1.7 billion euros next year. The left is obviously going to be very against any increases in defense spending. Yeah. And right? the history of Germany has been to spend very, very little on defense in the past century or so for obvious reasons, because they didn't want to give themselves that kind of power. Well, and while they were under control half by the Soviet Union, half by the West, neither the Soviet Union nor the West wanted to give them any kind of military power. Right. Um, and even since gaining independence and reuniting as a country, they didn't really want to build that up. So it's kind of, they're kind of in a very transitionary place where they've been dependent on Russia for their gas supply, for their energy for so long. And now Russia invades Ukraine, completely shaking up the geopolitical dynamic in Europe. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, Germany is like, okay, well, Russia only needs to invade Poland, like to come right up to our doorstep. Yep. We need to build up our own defenses. Plus, we want to be able to support Ukraine in their own defense. Well, they want to be... Listen, Europe's future is to become militarily independent from the United States. The, the, really? I, don't, I do not think that Europe views the United States as a consistent ally. Um, really? I don't, I don't think they're convinced that we're done with our populist, non-interventionist moment that was Donald Trump. Okay. I don't think they're convinced. I think they're scared of another non-interventionist coming in. And God forbid there's another Ukraine situation... And America's not there to bail us out. Yeah. Now, Europe is actually spending more mm. money in the defense of Ukraine. But a year ago, it was like all America. Mm. And the, the, America's, the American support is what kept Ukraine from collapsing in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think now Germany and the rest of the countries in the Eastern Bloc of, the, of Europe especially are going to be building up their defenses. Poland is buying HIMARS systems from the United States to the tunes of multi-billion dollars. Yeah, and and tensions at the Poland-Belarus border have already been rising. We haven't really talked about this yet, but Belarus has been doing some military operations right near the border of Poland, and I think there was a, a flight that crossed the border in the airspace and things got very shaky for a second. So Poland's been reinforcing that border with troops oh, yeah. already. Um, we haven't i don't know we haven't done a ukraine deep dive we haven't in a yet, while. have we no. um we we should probably get that on the docket yeah let's um, get docket. but but sources that i've heard from kind of expect that russia needs to push past ukraine in this current conquest for territory for them to feel nationally secure and poland is very much on the list of countries that could be in the way so for, for Poland and for these other Eastern European countries, as you're saying, it makes all the sense in the world. Like if they're seeing the writing on the wall, they need to stock up. And now them choosing to raise more money in defense, that is going to come at cuts to other things. And yes. now that leads us into the next part of Germany's budget fall where they're cutting other than the child tax credit. So now Germany is making substantial cuts to their infrastructure. They are having massive issues with rail funding. The, the, the Germany railway operators suggest that they need 45 billion euros of fresh money by 2024 for upgrades to prepare for the increase of passenger numbers that are going to come with a growing population. That's going to come with a greener environment. And the finance minister is only allocating 12 billion euros up until 2027. Mm. And labor unions are pissed at this. Labor unions are insisting that 
the finance minister is not investing on the future. He is pushing a break on the future. There are multiple challenges as the green transition and social issues and leaders of the German labor unions are suggesting that this is failing to invest in things that will make lives better for Germans. Yeah. So it's a very similar story between this and the United States. Yeah. Well, I feel like what we what we didn't quite outline here is the the key for for Lindner, mm-hmm. like the Republicans in the U.S., is to reduce the debt. Yeah. Right. That's why he wants to reduce spending. So what he's proposing um, is to implement a debt break, B-R-A-K-E, which means you can only borrow a certain fraction of GDP. Um, and so that's where these unions are saying that debt break, that's a break on our future. Right. And it, of course, works with the infrastructure perfectly as a pun. <laughs> uh, and... I think I'm I'm kind of in agreement. The question really is like it it's hard to figure out where to draw the line. Yeah. Right? There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be progress to be made. How hard do you push towards that progress and how much debt do you take on to try to do it? Well, Lindner says something that we talk about all the time. He says the interest costs on our budget are now twice as high as the budget for education and research. Mm-hmm. We simply cannot afford new rampant debts. They would be financially unfeasible Mm -hmm. i don't like to disagree with you i understand you know i just wish that there was a more incentive to have a better tax system that would capture more percentage of the gdp that this wouldn't be so much of an issue yeah it's interesting i looked into the german tax system a little bit yeah it's pretty similar to the u.s Mm -hmm. they have a bit higher of a marginal tax rate at the top they're like 42 percent we're at 37 um but the tax revenue that they brought in in 2022 is almost the exact same percentage of GDP there you go. as the U.S. There you at go. like 19%. That makes me so mad as an American because they have like basically free health care and we don't. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, and of course, check out our healthcare deep dive if you want to figure out why we spend way more on healthcare than any other country. Yes. Um, but this is what's going on in Germany right now. And, uh, you know, all of Europe is kind of in this economic crisis. We talk about the United Kingdom a couple times on the show. The United Kingdom is in a very, very difficult place. Yeah. Um, France is in an okay spot. But, you know, it, it's they're going to have some hard decisions now that they have to beef up their defense spending. Definitely. It does make me think, bigger picture question here. Yeah. What is, what are the necessities that government has to pay for, right? Like I just made the point of their... Mm-hmm. There are always more problems, right? You could always try to fix more, so you could out, which means you could always tax more. What is what? When is it going too far, right? Because for us, we think, oh, helping poverty, yeah, it seems like a pretty fair reason to tax. Mm-hmm. Defending Ukraine, that seems like a pretty fair reason to tax. It's hard for me to figure out exactly where I would draw that line because most of the issues we do talk about seem like, yeah, obviously you should tax to try to fix yeah. those. Listen, when it's when it has to do with Education, labor, healthcare, poverty, mm. housing, life or death, life much. or death stuff. That's when, or that that's when I'm like going to be okay with raising taxes to fund stuff through the government, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's just a larger thing. Of Germany's also going through an economic recession, mm-hmm. right? So they're not they're not growing as fast. They don't have as much money to spend. And we talk about the best way to get government to do things and get the government money to do stuff is to grow your economy Mm -hmm. that's the best way that's better than taxing yeah right so now germany is going through a recession it's 
I don't want Germany to repeat their mistakes of going through austerity in the face of a recession. Mm -hmm. That's what they did in 2008. And in 2008, the Europe, the Europe response to 2008 was a disaster for the continent. Their decision to pursue a policy of austerity stifled their economic opportunity. The United States with a different route. We passed the stimulus package. We did a fiscal stimulus response. The United States did the biggest COVID response out of any other Western nation. And because of that, we have expected GDP growth of 6% coming in the next year. Mm -hmm. The opposite happens in Europe where they choose a policy of austerity. And now you see an issue where they don't have the money to fund the things they want and they're going through a recession. So, point. yeah, it's interesting how Germany and the United States are going through something so similar. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I think this is the case in a lot of countries oh, yeah. right now, right? Like the late stage capitalism is causing problems. Yep. Governments want to spend to fix them, but the problems are kind of moving faster than they can handle right now. Yeah. Which is, let's go into the, let's, let's, let's hit up the migrant crisis. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. So the reason this has been developing for a while, if you read the news, you've definitely heard of it. Um, the reason I, decided to put it in the current events this week is because I saw this quote from Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, that it was going to destroy New York City, this migrant crisis. Um, so I want to go over the whole thing. Why is this happening? Why are all these migrants coming here right now? Um, what kind of burden are they placing on these cities? Why do these cities need to take care of them? Why can't they just go find jobs? We're going to cover all of it. So the reason they're coming here now is because mainly of an economic collapse that has been happening in Venezuela. So a couple years ago, an authoritarian socialist regime took over and it completely crippled the country's economy. Part of this also happened because of sanctions that the Trump administration put on Venezuela. Um, and I just wanted to note that. But in general, it's been the tightening of the economic policy that's completely stifled innovation and growth. Um, and that's just drove tons, drove in, driven millions of Venezuelans to leave the country. The vast majority of those are staying in other Latin American countries. But with over 7 million leaving the country, some have trickled all the way up to the U.S. So that's the, kind of a funny thing to me here. Over 7 million have left Venezuela. Less than half a million have come to the U.S. Oh, the vast majority is being sucked into Colombia. Right. Yeah. Colombia is facing the real burden of this crisis. Totally. Absolutely. So what this has been doing to cities a little bit, in New York City, Eric Adams had that quote, they're sheltering 59,000 migrants per night. It's projected to cost them $12 billion over the next three years, which is really an, like an insane cost for a city. And New York is having its own budgetary problems with property taxes shrinking mm -hmm. because of commercial real estate values. Chicago has 13.5 thousand migrants that it's housing. It's already cost Chicago $250 million. In Washington, D.C., there are 10.5 thousand migrants. In Massachusetts, the governor here, Maura Healy, declared a state of emergency. Um, and they're still expecting another thousand families per month. And so the reason that I'm mentioning New York City, Chicago, Washington, these are not states on the border. These are not cities on the border, right? These are all very blue cities. You might have heard about an initiative by Texas Governor Greg Abbott to bus migrants to blue cities, kind of to show Democrats their hypocrisy in supposedly wanting open borders, um, completely 
insecure borders and just let these migrants come in, which really, to be clear, Democrats aren't asking for. Um, but he's like, okay, you're you're the ones who are saying, let's bring the migrants in, but you're not dealing with the problem. So let's have you deal with the problem. But most of them aren't getting there because of the Texas governor, right? Most of them are getting there and they're looking for ways, they're looking for buses to take them to these blue cities because they expect to be taken more care of there. And they're looking for economic opportunity. And economic opportunity. So like, but New York City is a good example because it has a mandate to shelter, Mm. right? So, So the social support in these democratic cities does tend to be higher. Um, why are they not getting the economic opportunity? This is the weird thing about this crisis, right? We have all these migrants and we're spending a ton of federal money on supporting them and, of course, a ton of local money. But there are work shortages, there are labor shortages in these areas in the specific industries that migrants tend to work in. Right. So there was an article in the New York Times that said, some sectors of New York City's economy, such as restaurants, since the pandemic have roared back to life. Home health care has seen explosive growth. There are 57,000 more home health care aides in the city today than before the pandemic. Tourism has largely bounced back. These are all industries that are desperate for workers, and they have this huge potential workforce that is desperate to work. So what's in the way? Oh, man, if you tell me some work permitting stuff. I'm it is just, work permitting. Oh, I'm so mad. It is work permitting. No way. So an asylum seeker must wait 150 days from when they file an asylum application to when they can submit an application for employment authorization. Oh, my God. And federal law prohibits the approval of that work permit until 180 days after their asylum application filing. Oh my god, what are we supposed to what are they supposed to do then? So the crazy thing is he, there's there's criticisms in in two ways. The 150 number Biden can change unilaterally. Okay. So this is why these democratic mayors have you might have seen they've all been petitioning the Biden administration. They're like make it easier. He could cut that 150 down to 0. But to change that 180 we need congressional Ugh. change. And that seems impossible because right now, if you have any pulse on politics at all, you know that immigration is probably the most divisive issue in Congress. Why would Republicans not want to limit that 180 days? It seems like that's cutting red tape and it's getting people to work. Well, the reason is because part of their platform is we hate illegal immigrants. But they're not even illegal. They're migrants, right? But they're no, they're they're asylum seekers. Right, that's not illegal. You're allowed to claim asylum. You're you're allowed to apply for asylum, but they're doing that after getting to the border. So so here's the problem, right? They're getting to the border and they're applying for asylum, and then once they do that and they're pending, they're released into the country. Right, but that's not illegal. No, it's not illegal, but it's not ex- like it's legal. But it's not pre-approved, mm. almost, right? I see. It's they, still not happening through the legal immigration system. Oh, they want them to like, they, oh, that's why they want them to wait in Mexico. They want the wait in Mexico policy. Exactly. Right? So Which, they, oh, you can claim asylum here, but go back to Mexico, even if you're not from Mexico. That's what part of the funny part here is with Trump sanctioning Venezuela. Yeah, like, he caused this. Yeah, it, well, it hurt 
the diplomatic relations with Venezuela so much that we actually can't repatriate them back to Venezuela anymore. That's why we're sending them to Mexico. That's so funny. Isn't that insane? Oh, what a nightmare. So so that's where we're at as far as the legislation. That's why this is like such a weird issue where we need migrant labor. Migrant labor needs to work. They want to work. And yet we're not bridging that gap. And so what the Biden policy has done its institute or the Biden administration has done its administ its instituted policies to give asylum to twenty four thousand Venezuelan applicants. That's not enough. This is way too little to match demand. <laughs> but the because this came along with a bigger part of the reform, which was allowing the executive branch departments like ICE to deport the Venezuelans to Mexico. And after that, it really did decrease immigration enormously literally by like 90 percent no way it was like it was like a thousand immigrants coming over the border every day decreased to a hundred immigrants coming over the border every day wait so that's because biden gave asylum to twenty four thousand venezuelans and then said okay everyone else we're shipping you back to mexico pretty much okay yeah it's like we don't have to consider your asylum application for everyone besides these twenty four thousand so we can just get rid of you okay um and of course, for, for Democrats, or actually before I say this, there's one other quote in this New York Times article that is, is just perfect to me. It, as far as business leaders who they want the, the migrant workers to help them with their labor shortages, one of them said, it's just stupid. I mean, we're paying for them to sit in hotel rooms when they want to work. We have jobs that need people and we can't match them up. Like... I cannot think of something more fitting for the title of this show. Everything, Everything. sucks. The, like, it's so easy to fix. That's such an easy fix. Just let them work. Yeah. This, dude, you have two liberals here who want to get rid of red tape and cut regulations. Yeah. Let's do it. It's it's literally just paperwork getting in the way of us solving this problem. It's, it's, it's absurd. It could and, be growing our economies instead of sucking money out of our budgets. Yeah. Yeah. And... And Republicans, meanwhile, are just stuck on the issue of we need to stop illegal immigration. All of them are saying we need to send the military to the border. We need to send them into Mexico and have them snuff out the cartels themselves. The problem is that we don't have enough legal immigration policy. That's we don't the problem. have enough legal immigration availability. There is literally no way for an unskilled laborer to enter the United States legally. Yeah. It is absolutely impossible for that to happen. Yeah. So this this just got me this got me heated because it's like it's so absurd. It's so ridiculous. It's another one of those things where it's like our, I cannot believe our government is this dysfunctional. Well, do you know if Biden is leaning towards taking that hundred and fifty down to zero? Um, I I haven't seen anything. I think he's worried about the political ramifications. That's the only thing in my head. Right. That's the only right? thing. Immigration is too hot button. Right, the the election campaigns are happening right now. Oh, right, I can already see the ads. Like, oh, Biden is encouraging immigrants to come across the border and steal your job. Yes, right. But the truth is, if he does decrease it, the crisis kind of fizzles away, and you the, don't really think about it as much because yes. then they're able to afford their own apartments. And and he can he can argue as to why he did it. Yep. Like, there's such clear reasoning that he can present if there's a debate or if he's getting an interview. Mm -hmm. Right. So I. 
I don't know. It's it's depressing. Let these people work here. We did a whole deep dive on immigration as well, and this just fits so perfectly so with the perfectly. policies that we were advocating for. We know that immigration has a positive economic multiplier. We know that. Yeah. We also know that immigration has a positive economic multiplier for wages. Yes. They don't even decrease native wages. Exactly. They increase native wages. Because migrant workers generally don't compete even with low-end native workers. Okay. And we, yeah, I'm glad we're hammering that home. It sucks that we, that this is a problem. Um, Listen, restore the dignity of work, Republicans. Get these guys to work, please. Yeah. I don't know why I have to be the one saying this. You, why do you want them holed up in a hotel room for free? Why do you want that? Republicans love people who want to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be hard workers to make a better life for themselves. That's what all of these people are. So let them do it. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. That was awesome, dude. <sighs> that was so good. Yeah, that gets me heated. I love it. Now, let's go. Oh, my God. You know what gets me? You know what gets me excited? <laughs> you know what gets me all tingly inside? The thought of millionaires paying taxes. Oh, God. Oh, man. Someone's got someone's to have to clean this room up after. I've got all steamy. <laughs> okay. The IRS. This is so awesome. The yeah. IRS is cracking down on 1,600 millionaires to collect millions of dollars in back taxes. This money that the IRS is the IRS is only able to do this because of the Biden administration's decision to include more IRS funding in the Inflation Reduction Act passed a year or so ago. Because of this, the IRS now has the tools, the means, and the people to go after the tax cheats who have been ripping you and me off for years. Now let's go into this, okay? So the IRS on Friday announced that it is launching an effort to aggressively pursue 1,600 millionaires and 75 large businesses that owe hundreds of millions of dollars in past due taxes. You pay your taxes every time you get a paycheck. If you don't pay your taxes, the IRS will come down on you hard. If you don't pay your taxes, the IRS will garnish your wages. If one of these 75 massive companies doesn't pay their taxes, they get defended by some legislators in the country and no one bats an eye. Mm -hmm. That is starting to change. Okay. So Daniel Werfel, he is the one of the leaders of the IRS um, enforcement mechanisms. He's one of the leaders in that department. He said that the federal funding has helped them develop artificial intelligence tools and they can now more impactfully and specifically target wealthy people who have been able to cut corners that, you know, when you're able to have that much money, you're able to pay people to make your taxes lower because you're able to find all the loopholes and cut the corners that the IRS, it takes too long for the IRS to figure out you got away with theft. Mm -hmm. But now with this artificial intelligence, they're able to stop that. Um, he says, Werfel says this in the interview, if you pay your taxes on time, it should be particularly frustrating when you see that wealthy filers are not. He said that 1,600 millionaires who owe at least $250,000 each in back taxes and 75 business partnerships that have assets of roughly $10 billion on average are targeted with these new compliance efforts. Um, I think it's so cool that they're using AI to detect the cut corners. Yes. Right? That's already such an awesome application of the of the of the technology. Yes. And I'm glad that the government is doing that. What I expect to be a cost cutting mechanism, mm -hmm. right? When budgets are already tight, when we're already borrowing so much to fund the government as is, that they're doing something that's going to lower the cost of their operations. Absolutely. And now what is the impact of this? How much money is actually being kept away 
from the government through this? Well, a team of academic economists and the IRS researchers in 2021 found that the top 1% of U.S. income earners fail to report more than 20% of their earnings to the IRS. You are taxed on 100% of everything you earn. These guys are only taxed on 80% of what they earn. Why? Because they have more money than you. That's the only reason. I'll also say in that same study, they found that that is compared to 7% of true income not being reported in the bottom 50%. So it's almost triple the percentage of income in the top 1% that goes unreported. Unfathomable. Absolutely unfathomable. Now, who would be against this? Who would be against paying your taxes that you're supposed to be paying? Mm -hmm. Well, Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist leads the Conservative Americans for Tax Reform Group, and he says that the IRS plan to pursue wealthy individuals does not preclude the IRS from eventually pursuing middle-income Americans. Okay, to me, this is like a different type of dog whistle that has become... And dog whistle is almost like a wrongly charged word for uh-huh. me to use there. Yeah, it doesn't have to but, be a racially charged dog whistle. No, what do you mean by dog whistle? It's a dog whistle in that they're not okay with applying a certain policy to one group or one type of behavior. And they say, oh, well, if they start here, then they can keep doing it with everyone else. Well, that's... That's not a good enough reason to not use a policy yep. to fix the problem that is happening with one specific group of people. Let, let's get to that problem when it comes. Yes. Right? Let, let's deal with that if that happens. Because I agree with you. If the IRS uses this money to go harder against lower income people, then I'm with you. Mm-hmm. But the IRS already has a history of going against people with low income. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's easier. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have the lawyers. Because you, they didn't cut corners. They just accidentally filed their tax return wrong. And now they're getting hounded by the IRS because they don't know how to file their taxes. And there isn't a built-in e-file system in the IRS. They have to pay somebody else to do their taxes for them. They don't have the money to do it. So they try to do it themselves. Then they get called for tax fraud. Yeah. That's why lower lower income people get get audited more exactly and it's ridiculous so republicans are also against this republicans um during the debt ceiling negotiations built in a 1.4 billion dollar reduction to the irs um and also tried to rescind 20 billion dollars from the infrastructure reduction act additional funding that's going over the last next two years what i've heard from the irs is that this 20 billion dollars wasn't really needed anyway And it's not going to make that big of a difference Mm -hmm. because what they had planned to do is going to get done no matter what now. Yeah. Well, I think 60 billion for the IRS is already just so enormous. Exactly. Right. Compared to their funding, which has been systematically decreased for Mm -hmm. multiple decades now. That's all I had to say. Okay. You sounded like you were going to keep going there. I felt like I did for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Fuck. Okay. So now I want to go into a little bit of a history of why the IRS was underfunded for so long. Yeah. And just kind of what's been happening here. So in 2012, the number of audits for people with over a million dollars in income was 41,000. Okay. 41,000 people were audited who made over a million dollars in 2012. In 2017, the first year of the Trump administration, it went down to 22,000, a 50% reduction in the number of millionaires getting audited mm-hmm. in Trump's first year. Then 2018, his second year drops down to 16, 2019 drops down to 14,000, 2020 drops down to 11,000, 2020 makes sense because of COVID and everything. 
2021 starts bumping back up, but this is still pre any more funding. Yeah. We're about to see an explosion in this number. Yeah. And so the reason this was happening specifically is the IRS has changed the type of people that they hire. Because right? of budget constraints. Yes, exactly. They're hiring more, quote, tax examiners rather than revenue agents. So tax examiners are paid less, but they're also less knowledgeable. So they're much less equipped to audit millionaires who probably have multiple sources of income, who might be sheltering money in a bunch of different accounts, um, who have a team of lawyers and accountants that work for them. Uh, so these tax examiners, instead, the only way they can spend their time really is to audit poorer people. Yeah. I mean, and so in 2010, we had over 14,000 revenue agents. Mm-hmm. And a, let's say this. In 2010, we had 15,000 revenue agents and 12,000 tax examiners. So it's like a, what is that? 55, 45 split, mm-hmm. 45% revenue agents. I'm uh, sorry, 55% revenue agents, 45% tax examiners. Well, when you go to 2021, we only have 8,000 revenue agents and 12,000 tax examiners. Yeah. That number has gone 60, 40 tax, tax examiners. These people don't have the knowledge or the education or the wherewithal to go after the millionaires. No. And it's because that the IRS just didn't have the money. They had empty seats that they needed to fill, but instead of paying the people $90,000 for educated people, they were paying $60,000 to undereducated people who didn't have the skills they needed to go after the millionaire tax cheats that makes your taxes higher at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's only to speak of the composition of who's been hired. What's also buried in the numbers there is that the total there was 27,000 workers in 2010 versus 20,000 workers in 2021. Do you think there's less taxing taxes being filed in 2010 than now yeah no our population has been growing since then it hasn't been shrinking why would we be shrinking the size of our irs when our population is growing it makes no sense it was a it's a desired goal to not be able to capture the income of the upper percent of people that's the desired goal it's at a certain point it became easier for them to be like, oh, wait, we don't even have to cut our taxes. We could just make it harder for the government to enforce the current tax law. Exactly. It, it feels like neoliberalism through and through. Oh, it's God. like we don't have to fight the Democrats in Congress to figure, like to change what tax law is. We can we can do this all just in the implementation. Right. right? We can just totally do it in the implementation. Yeah. Um, one of the good things that have come out of this additional IRS funding is during this tax season, if you called the IRS office, you had a 92% chance of somebody actually picking up the phone. That's awesome. Last year, it was 30%. A 60% increase in people picking up the phone for a necessary government service. Yeah. All because Republicans didn't want millionaires to pay their fair share. It's making it impossible for you to get help filing your taxes. You know, so we try to be... We've talked. We've already talked about some bipartisan things that we want on the show. Yeah. We want Democrats and Republicans to work together to figure out how to keep the government funding. But... Republicans need to get off of their defense of millionaires to such this disgusting descent, um, extent. extent. <laughs> okay, you can be for lower taxes. I understand that. But you need to be able to be ready to apply the same tax code you apply to me and to a single mom that you're going to apply to a millionaire. Yeah, I think the, the problem is they just don't want like, – like their perspective is – we don't want taxes anyways. Right. So why would we give money to the IRS? Like we're, we're fine with people evading or avoiding their taxes. Yeah. Like I mean, we encourage it. Yeah. 
So, so that was taxes. That was the oh, IRS. So that was the IRS. We're moving on to some interesting information about the child tax credit and a new report that just came out. Yes. So I, I, I want to preface this by saying Biden came into office and built the largest social safety net that the United States had ever seen up until this point. Mm. He expanded the work of FDR and yep. Lyndon B. Johnson, and he made it a point that he was going to tackle poverty for the first time in the last 40 years since Lyndon B. Johnson. 50 years. 50 years. Yeah. This was a moment where the American social safety net was going to expand. Mm -hmm. And year after year, over the last two years since the American Rescue Plan, it has been stripped away from the American people, and they're starting to feel the effect. Yeah, because honestly, Biden was able to do this because of the crisis of COVID. Yeah. The crisis of COVID gave him the political expedience. It yeah. gave him the reason to put these types of policies into place because it showed everybody actually how close you are to the edge of devastation. Yes, and totally. So what what are we talking about here? After Joe Biden comes into office and he passes the American Rescue Plan— we see household um, real income. cash balances, not income, cash balances. Okay. So money they have in the bank jumps up by like 70, 80% because of that $1,400 check, because of the expansion of unemployment benefits, because of the child tax credit. All of these things boosted your cash balances and your in, in, in your in your bank accounts on average by nine by eighty percent if you were in the bottom quartile of wealth and then even if you were in the top quartile of wealth uh court yeah even if you were in the top quartile of wealth your your average cash balance went up by forty percent unfortunately month after month that eventually decreases 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 the child tax credit when it's implement when these payments are going out slows the decrease. But now, as of as of uh, this study is of April of 2023, cash balances are almost back to where they were prior to Joe Biden taking office. Hmm. We, this is this is showing the social safety net disappearing before our eyes. Yeah, that he worked so hard to create. Um, and one of the most devastating aspects of this is how it affects childhood poverty. So the United States is special about a lot of things. We have a fantastic. Defense Department. We are the arsenal of freedom and liberty across the nation, across the world, whatever that means. Um, we have some of the best and largest businesses. Yeah. We have some of the f biggest oil reserves and oil production. Yeah. We also have the largest childhood poverty rate out of any large Advanced economy country. Yeah. Um, as of 2021, after the child tax credit, okay. We had a poverty rate of 7.8%. 7.8% was our poverty rate um, after this expansion of the social safety net. As of 2022, it has jumped up to 12.4%, a doubling of poverty. Real quick, I want to I posit a potential counterargument. When we learn about neoliberalism versus Keynesianism, mm -hmm. the idea of a lot of government stimulus... One neoliberal argument against government stimulus is that you're going to be investing a bunch of money into these projects that are kind of untenable on their own, hmm. right? And that as soon as that money is taken away, um, they're going to fail as they would have if they never had gotten that money. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, 
does does giving this kind of stimulus does it end up potentially end up whiplashing right where people people get used to having more money and spending more um and then and then when the money isn't coming in anymore they haven't found ways to supplement their income and that's the reason that the cash balances have gone low because what i'm seeing here in this graph that we have in our notes is that the cash balances are or actually never mind this is only over the course of covid so i'll just end my question there okay because i think like the child tax credit was supposed to be permanent yes the biden the biden administration's goal was to put the child tax credit into play and then show the Republican Party, show the American people how much it was actually going to affect you every month, and then it would be impossible for anybody to be against it. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen, mainly because it wasn't marketed well enough and people didn't know what it did. But I I wanted to emphasize this again. We had a 7.8% poverty rate with the expanded social safety net. After the social safety net dissolved, it went up to 12.4%, almost doubled our poverty rate. Mm -hmm. For children? It almost tripled it. Childhood poverty dropped to 5.2%, and it's now up to 12.4%. What destroys me and what makes me so sad is this makes it so obvious that these problems are choices. Mm, We solved this problem. By legislators. By legislators. We solved this problem. To 5.2%, we got childhood poverty down the lowest in American history. Mm Mm-hmm. And we chose, our legislators that we elected chose to triple it. That's a decision that our government made. And we should be furious about this. This isn't the only thing that's getting taken away out of the social safety net. Um, the COVID era emergency programs also increased subsidies for health care, made it easier for you to get on to the um, Affordable Care Act exchanges and get health insurance. Those are going to be going away in the coming months. We also have subsidies for programs like child care child care is a massive burden on working families and the biden administration put in child care subsidies into the american rescue plan that he was then going to make permanent with the passage of the american families plan but republicans and conservative democrats decided that no we don't want child care to be capped at seven percent of your income we don't want the child tax credit to be expanded and to uh, subsidize raising your children because of how difficultly expensive it is mm-hmm. during this you know moment in American history where the cost of everything was rising so rapidly, they decided that that was not a priority. And because of that, childhood poverty has tripled. Um, it just sucks because it makes – it sucks, but it also makes me excited. But let's be optimistic here. At the potential that it does have. Think about this. If we can get it back. We have the ability as a nation, as a people, as citizens to work together and cut childhood poverty, not in half, but by 75%. We have the ability and the funds to do something like that. That is something that is within our capacity. Mm -hmm. And we should be excited by the opportunity that we are able to do something like that. We just have to fight for it. We have to vote out the people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and all the other Republicans that block this from happening. 
Okay, there are some Republicans who wanted a child tax credit. Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney proposed a child tax credit fairly similar to Joe Biden's. Marco Rubio proposed a child tax credit fairly similar to Joe Biden's. Joe Biden's was better, but Mitt Romney's and Marco Rubio's was a good starting point for negotiations. Those aren't the Republicans I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Republicans like Mitch McConnell, Rick Scott. These people decided that, no, childhood poverty is not my problem. I don't care. Um, I care. And that's why I'm going to do everything I can to make something like that back in America. I'm sitting over here. And the reason that I'm I feel like I'm not speaking as passionately is because what was going through my mind is is what I was saying before. Again, we're always going to have we're almost certainly always going to have some level of poverty. Right. Um, and the closer you get to the margin of completely stamping it out, the more you're going to have to spend to do that. Yeah. But the return on investment here is really good huge and there's a difference in childhood poverty in my opinion because those are people who can't really do anything about their situation they can't get up and just go find some work somewhere and make money for themselves like children are in a very specific vulnerable and formative situation where that money not like it changes their lives and it changes our society for the better Mm -hmm. um and the reason that we can trust that money from the child tax credit is going to good places instead of funding lazy um and unproductive parents is because of what this study has said we have a study um titled um uh, we have a study from the nick what is this study called? The Niskanencenter.org? Nis- 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 All right, whatever. The, the, the name of the study is, What Data on How Parents Spend Their Child Tax Credit Payments Can Tell Policymakers. And believe it or not, they did not spend their money on drugs. They did not spend their money on alcohol. Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, actually said that he doesn't like the child tax credit because it would go, too many parents would abuse the money and use it on drugs. He said that. Well, guess what, Joe Manchin? We have the data and we know what the answer is to mm-hmm. these questions. 31% of child tax credit money went towards housing. 28% of child tax credit money went towards food. 7% went towards clothing. 6 6% went to transportation. 1% went to health. 6% went to leisure. And we actually saw a reduction in alcohol and tobacco spending. Yeah. It's funny because I I dug into this a little bit and I clicked on uh, one of the links that was posted in this study or in, in the article about the study. And it was about the psychology of the parents who receive money from the child tax credit. What turns out is that they actually use that money specifically more responsibly than they would otherwise. Of course. Because they feel the stigma of getting that money, right? And they... They feel a certain responsibility. They understand the privilege that they're getting and they feel a responsibility to spend it on their children, which is why it's going to the bare necessities. And besides that, those that 7% on clothing, that 6% on transport, that 6% on leisure, that's for their kids. Right. Right? That's clothing for their kids. That's transportation to get them to not only to school, but to extracurricular activities right. and sports. Think about that. This child tax credit, that's 6% on leisure? That might be a kid getting to go to piano lessons for the first time. Exactly. Right? That's, that is what we're talking about by completely changing lives, completely changing the trajectories of these kids. Um, 
and just giving them opportunities to enjoy more of the richness of life. And it makes me so mad when guys like Joe Manchin get on there and they make up this lie that the parents are taking all the money and then going and spending it on alcohol. And he says that out of his ass. And then you can disprove it. And you could say, look, actually, look, wait, they don't spend it on alcohol and tobacco and nothing changes about his opinion. Well, it's because I think there are so many people listening that already have that bias. Right. Right. They're already like all of these people who take welfare money are free riders. And so they're just going to take the money and spend it on shit that they don't need and that actually makes them worse. And there's going to be some people who hear us talk about this data, this information, who are still going to say the same thing or gonna they're gonna comment on our videos and say that's total bullshit. Yep. Like this is this is you're totally a plant. Um and that's fine, but for people in the middle who might naturally be skeptical of what we're saying, I just want you to be just as skeptical of what Joe Manchin says. Yes. And just because you can put together in your head, like, yeah, I could see people like, like I'm cynical and I do things that aren't productive for me sometimes. And I might do like, I might, I don't know, go out and buy cookies with that money instead of uh, buying a book that would make me better. Sure. I could do the same thing too, but we need to use the data that we do have, even if it's not completely 100% perfect. It's something and it's worth it because it is something. And it's important. Yes. It's just important to be malleable to new ideas. Mm -hmm. And honestly, we are. I think there's been a lot of instances where I've come around on this show to things that I didn't think I was in full support of. I think I'm like totally on board with raising the military budget in some instances to combat China. Yeah. I never would have thought that I would ever be for something like that. Yeah. Ever. Totally. Did I ever really think I was going to be for the expansion of NATO or anything like that? God, no. I thought NATO was a, 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 you know, an bloated, a bloated American imperialist thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think that anymore, and it's because of this show. Yeah. And I think that there are other issues that we get in on this, that if you're coming at this from a genuine, open-minded point of view, we do a kind of analysis that's, that's very objective. Yes. We, obviously, we throw our opinions in there. That's fine. But our method of building our case yeah. is a very objective method. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if people do throw new information at us that will change that opinion, we are open to that. Yeah. That's why I think our strength here is we are focusing on problems. Yes. Right? We're focusing on solving problems. We're not focusing on winning a game. That's right. a huge difference. Yes. That's a massive difference. And it, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's just, I, it's important. I wish that more news was like this. Yeah. We say this a lot, but I just wish that there was more analysis like this about these problems instead of just talking heads spewing bullshit. Well, it's funny because even something like the New York Times, which is like the, um, the bastion of, of not necessarily neutral news. It's still, it's still kind of liberal lean. And I think everybody knows that, but it's supposed to be completely fact-based. I find so often when I'm reading these articles, I'm scrolling through so much. The article is just like, this person's opinion was this, or this person, um, this person on this side said this, and it doesn't get into the specifics and the nitty gritty that allow you to actually figure out what the, what the problem is. Like it took me, uh, the New York Times article didn't really cover the specifics of this, the this migrant crisis, right, with the 150 days versus 180 days mm-hmm. of asylum seekers going through applications. I had to look elsewhere to find that. So it, it's it's rarer than we think. More news outlets than you think are guilty of it. Yeah. Um. And so I I don't blame any viewers. Well, I think like I think journalists have a different. 
way of covering these things than we do because we're not mm. journalists. No. Honestly, what we do for a living is we're analysts. We're data analysts. We're yeah. data managers. We're data scientists. Yeah. That's what we do for a living. Um, so we come at these problems differently than a journalist does. A journalist goes, okay, um, what do you think? Oh, you think that? All right, let me write down what you think. Oh, what do you think? Okay, let me write down what you think. And then let's combine both of those. And okay, I have a neutral newspaper. Sure. That's not actually neutrality. No. Neutrality is saying, okay, well, this is the problem. Let me isolate this. Let me try to figure out why this problem is happening. Let me go look up some research papers. And let me try to build the case to understand what is actually causing the issue. See, I'm not sure. I, I think it might be neutrality what they're doing. I think the difference that I would describe is it's not independent thinking oh that's it's better. the opposite yes it's it's thought aggregation oh. with no bias towards the thoughts because you don't want to do the independent thinking. oh my god i'm gonna start calling mainstream media the thought aggregators yeah that's all they are that's right? perfect and it's like okay i'm gonna aggregate only these people and i'm gonna aggregate only these dumb people on the other side and then we're gonna throw that at you Right, and then we're going to be neutral, and yes. you're going to you're going to learn both sides. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is the actual root of the issue here? Where's the analyst to show you exactly the data and to show you how to solve these types of problems? Exactly, it's not existent. No. Okay. All right. Let's go. Let's go on to some more international politics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go into Argentina. Now, I am not an expert on Argentinian politics at all. Okay, I'm a very average consumer of Argentinian politics. All right. I'm even less less of an expert than him. And so I was not going to cover the Argentinian election at all. I wasn't even going to think about it. I just thought, you know, something's going on over there. Their inflation's crazy. What a wild time. Mm -hmm. But I was at a bar with my friends and we were playing pool. And we're talking about politics while we're playing. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, he starts asking me questions about politics, like this random stranger I met at the bar, right? And eventually we're talking. He's like, well, what do you think of the Argentinian election? random dude right like a random 20 something year old guy i just want to make sure you're still talking into the mic oh yeah okay yeah. random 20 something year old guys asking me my opinion on the argentina election in this bar um and i'm like honestly i don't have one and he starts going off i'm like okay wow uh i guess i need to learn about this so here we go okay the first round of the argentinian election happened um over the last couple weeks happened in late august and came to some very shocking results in third place we had the Unity for the Homeland candidate, um, which is basically the center-left candidate. And I'll break down all the different candidates specifically in a minute. But we have the center-left coming in third at 27%. Then we had the center-right candidate coming in at 28%. And then we had a third new party coming in at basically 31%, uh, 30%. Um, and his name is Javier uh Mieli. Mieli? Meli? Millet. Millet. Thank you. Yeah. Javier Millet. Um, so who is Javier Millet? And how did this third party guy come out of nowhere and beat the two mainstream political parties? How did that happen? So Javier Millet um was is an Argentinian economist, um, and he has authored several books on politics and on economics, and he is a massive neoliberal, big time neoliberal big supporter of Milton Freeman, and he is furious with the state of the Argentinian economy. And he wants to completely reshape how Argentina, our Argent, Argent, yeah, you're, you're getting, you're constantly getting between like Argentine, Argentinian and Argentina. and Argentina. Okay. Argentina is the country. Thanks. Argentinian 
is it's the, the adjective. Is an adjective. Or, or the person. Right. It's the subject. Yeah, but I think, but you're saying the Argentinian election. Yes. Often. Oh, God, I want to, I hate this. This is <laughs> yeah. not going to be good for me. Unfortunately, in this line of business, words matter. And I'm not good with them. <laughs> uh, that's why I studied math. But, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what does uh, Malay want to do? Malay wants to vastly cut government spending. He wants to uh, redefine. So he wants to cut government spending massively. He wants to basically dissolve the central bank. He says that there are four types of central banks. The bad ones, like the Federal Reserve, the very bad ones, the ones in Latin America, uh, the horribly bad ones, and then at the very bottom, you have the Central Bank of Argentina. So he wants to completely abolish the Central Bank of Argentina, start from new. He wants to crap, uh, he wants to scrap electric vehicle battery, uh, subsidies. He wants to privatize all government agencies. He wants to redefine the National Scientific and Technical Research Council while shutting down or merging most government ministries. Ministries. We currently have, uh, Argentine, Argentina. I'm not going to be able to do this. Argentina <laughs> currently has 18 government ministries, and he wants to cut it down to eight. So not only does this guy want to cut the number of ministries in the government from 18 down to eight, cut out eight, 10 of the ministries, he also wants to go at the Constitution. He opposes all trade unions and describes Article 14 of the Constitution, which guarantees labor rights, pensions, and the entire social security system as the country's cancer and has pledged to repeal it as president. Wow. Wow. So why would Argentina want somebody like this in office? What is causing their libertarian revolt? Yeah. Well, um, honestly, if any country were to have it, it has good reason. Yeah, Argentina's economy is absolutely in the dump. So Argentina has been suffering from very, very bad inflation and poor fiscal policy and monetary policy for a long time. This is not new. During the 90s, they had to receive um, an influx of money from the International Monetary Fund, which is not really heard of for a G20 nation. Exactly. Right. A G20 nation, uh, one of the largest economies in the world, should not be getting money from the International Monetary Fund. Mm -hmm. And the International Monetary Fund then makes you do some type of economic policies that makes it a little bit harder to grow. They kind of prescribe austerity to you in order to get the money. Yeah, well, which makes sense because it's like, okay, if we're going to give you this money, we want you to be a little bit safer with it. But that also means if you have to be safer, it's going to be harder to invest in higher growth opportunities. Exactly. So, Argentina has always been suffering from high inflation for a long time, but it has come to a head post-COVID. They are currently at over 100% inflation. So I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm understanding why exactly is this. One of the biggest reasons is they had a massive drought and their food export has dropped 50% from last year. Why does that lead to inflation? Where's the connection? Can you help there me? There is less demand for their currency on the international market. Okay. Much less demand for their currency on the international market. Because now. if, say, you're going to have to use Argentinian currency yes. to buy Argentinian food, exactly. but if there's less of that food to buy on the international market, you don't need the currency. Right. Okay. So now we see a massive decrease in their GDP. Their GDP has basically almost not grown over the last two years. They had a 1.6% contraction last quarter mm. and only a 0.7% increase this quarter. Okay. So basically no economic growth over the last year. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where they're at. Okay. 
Now, the government also spends a lot of money. Argentina has a large social safety net for Latin America. Um, this goes back to basically their founding idol. Um, uh, his name was uh, Perón, and Peronism has basically been what leads mm. Argentinian politics. Peronism okay. was very pro-labor unions. He was very pro-social safety net. Some kind of say he was somewhat of a fascist in ways where he centralized the labor unions into the state. Interesting. Um, but that's kind of tricky. Okay. Uh, really quick. Yeah. As two leftists, mm -hmm. what are the lessons here? Right? The lessons here you can go too big. Okay. That's my lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Lessons here is you can go too big. And if you don't prioritize economic growth, you are in trouble. So is part of the problem that if all of these industries were nationalized and unions are given too much power, um, the common neoliberal arguments are that you're going to stifle innovation. People aren't going to want to start their own companies. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I, I don't know how deep you got into this. I'm like so much more of a novice. Do you yeah. think that was part of the problem? Well, I think a large part of the problem is, is, is it's kind of bigger than that. Okay. I think a big part of the problem is that Argentina uh, doesn't have a strong currency the way the euro is or the way the dollar is. Okay. So the way that they're able to fund their social services, their central bank just has less power. I see. So they really don't have the international clout to go be printing money for social programs the way the United States does. Interesting. Because there's such a demand for the U.S. dollar on the international market, it's so hard for it to lose value. Okay. Okay. So the United States is in a fairly great position because of that. Same yes. thing with the euro. And I see here part of Millet's idea is to dollarize their economy. He wants to completely scrap the country's currency. Mm. Say, oh, you screwed up. Throw it all out. Gone. Done going to get all dollars from now on how do you feel about that i think that uh i don't know because i don't know enough fair and one of the things that's great about this show is we'll be honest <laughs> when we don't know enough we'll yeah. just say it i'm not trying to impress anybody again not our job so you can't really blame us that much um, you're not allowed to but some economists say that a dollarized economy um will not solve the problem short term mm. it may be an okay solution long term as an american i would love for them to dollarize their currency because yeah. that means there's more demand for the dollar internationally which makes my spending power on the international market way better yep so argentina go ahead dollarize your economy helps me as an american sure. right um but it's just not a total solution to this problem because one the argentinian um international currency reserves are the lowest they've been in a very very long time so they will need to buy a lot of dollars on the international market in order to take out all pesos out of their current out of their economy mm. and give everybody dollars that's going to cost a lot of money okay that's going to cost a lot to import all those dollars mm -hmm. then it also limits the amount of monetary policy that the nation can do in times of recession so the united states we have these problems we can raise our interest rates we can lower our interest rates to spur economic growth okay if argentina dollarizes their economy they completely lose the monetary policy tool of lowering interest rates to spur growth and raising interest rates to curb inflation. So there are they on the same interest rates that the US Fed sets then? Yes. If they dollarize their economy, they will be on the same interest rates as the US Fed. Wow. Which is a lot of that's a lot of power to give to a foreign country. Yeah. That seems foolish. Yeah, I mean, but he is suggesting that the United States dollar is so much more stable than ours. True. That we're just better off going to theirs true but i mean but if your economy isn't moving like 
completely within alignment of the U.S. Right, right, right. What if you're in an inflationary period where the United States is in a period where they want to spur growth? Yeah. The United States has low interest rates. Well, actually, you need to raise your interest rates because your inflation is going up. But he is a monetarist, which is a little wonky here, but he believes that all inflation is caused by too much money which I don't believe. I don't believe all inflation is caused by too much money. I think inflation can be caused by lack of investing into the necessities of life, which cause inflation as well. Mm. I think So he doesn't think that that will even happen. He thinks inflation will go away if we tie ourselves to the dollar. I see. That's where he's coming from. And he's not alone in that. There are monetarists who believe that all inflation is due to um, the amount of, of your currency on the market. So- Though this this point about the lack of food production mm-hmm. does kind of seem to combat that, it to does counter that. It does. It combats it a lot. Yeah, it combats it a lot. The lack of food production has really damaged Argentina. Yeah, really hard. Yeah. So it's like it's it's hard to say that it is only the money supply when the production that you have on the international market is kind of clearly making an impact as well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but. I, one other thing I found funny about this guy is he said that the greatest enemy in the world was not Karl Marx, but John Maynard Keynes, <laughs> which is so funny as two Keynesians sitting here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I would definitely classify ourselves as Keynesians. I Keynesians, guess. I mean, right? I, I honestly, I think we're too, I, not, again, we're, we're, I'm fucking stroking our egos here, but we're, we're too independent of thinkers to like say we like follow we have, yeah we're like kind we have some keynesian ideas but yeah. not all yeah that's true yeah. that's a fair assumption um but i want to dig a little bit more to the election right so now i gave you we we talked about who was leading this libertarian guy why he's leading the economic circumstances but i also think it's interesting to talk about the collapse of the major parties mm. i mean this is like a, the democrats and republicans losing to the libertarian party in the u.s i mean that's a big deal it's kind of like trump getting elected mm-hmm. right um but so Argentina has a history of Peronism. Now, we talked a little bit about what Peronism is, and the party that basically represents Peronism in this election, he is the unity for the homeland. Now, the unity for the homeland came in third, and the next election will be taking place on October 22nd, where these three candidates, uh, Malay, the Together for Change, which is the center-right, and the unity for the homeland, the center-left, the Peronist party, they will all face off together, um, and then... If none of them get 50% of the vote or more, they go to uh, another round of votes after that. A runoff. A runoff. I assume. Until somebody gets 50%. Okay. Um, it looks like Malay is going to definitely get into the runoff from at, this. At least. At least. He's right? leading the polls. Yeah. I think he's going to get into the runoff. And then it comes down to if the unity for the homeland votes for the together with change candidate or the together with change candidate votes for the unity with the homeland. But- I think it's very possible that Argentina does elect a hardcore libertarian who wants to dissolve their entire currency. It's the it's the worldwide rise of populism yeah. that we've talked about in other contexts, including Germany, which we've obviously seen in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny. I've I've had a blog for a while. I haven't written a post on there in many months now, but I wrote something. Um, I, I had like a couple articles I wrote, like like WTF is happening, um, and one is the rise of populism, mm. and basically I think we're we're just getting into this point where there's so much shittiness, yep. in the world that 
like we were talking about this right before the show, people are just desperate to shake up the system. And in Argentina, when you have over 100% inflation on an annual basis, right, you're sitting there and you're desperate for someone to shake up the system. You don't care how it shakes. You just want it shook. Yes. You don't give a shit. You, yeah, just, want, like, you just need something needs to give here. Like how much worse could it get? Right. Right. How much worse could it get? I mean, think about it. 100% inflation. We're in the United States. We were complaining about 8%. Yeah. Yeah. 100% inflation. I, I mean, I, I'm trying to think if if I'm – if something's going to be doubling in price next year, I feel like I'm trying to – I'm trying to hoard – or, no, I'm trying. I'm trying to buy as much shit as I can right now, so yes. that I can have it at a higher value next year. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's just it, it's going to be a nightmare, and um, we'll see how that election turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not he's able to implement any of his policies is another thing, because his party isn't going to control the legislature, mm. right? But just having him at the top is going to be such an interesting moment. And Argent uh, Argentina's poverty rate has jumped to like forty percent because of this inflationary spiral. Forty percent poverty mm. now, and so yeah, something's got to give. Something's got to give. Yeah. All right. Interesting election. We will be covering it. Let's hop over to our favorite human being. <laughs> Literally our favorite human being of all yes. time. My favorite human being. Yeah, he really I would is. kiss him if I could. Where is he? Okay. I, I have to say, my friend, Pudding Fingers, Ronald. Meatballs. Meatballs. Spaghetti. spaghetti. But then this is a great one, okay? Uh, one of uh, we got a TikTok comment, and he called him Rhonda Santis, and I love that. And I, I, I told him I was going to use that in this episode. Yes. So user, I don't remember your name, bro. <laughs> user one four seven eight. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. It was some random TikTok thing. Rhonda Santis, th- that's for you, buddy. Yeah. Okay. Um, he is collapsing as always, and his collapse is one of the funniest things to happen in American politics in a long time. Um, it's just so funny that this guy was such a darling for so long. Everyone thought he was going to be the new Trump to lead us out of the, you know, the Trump era and bring us back to, you know, still Republican insanity, but like a little bit more of a respectable Republican insanity. I guess. Right. Like guess. that was the vibe. The vibe was like, he's not going to be as crazy as Trump. Well, he's not going to be like as vulgar and crude. Yes, that's what I mean. As Trump. I don't mean policy wise. Policy wise yeah. is the same or worse. Ex- exactly. Which is why like. Even even me, like I feel like I kind of like him less. Yeah. Like I kind of again, I don't I don't like Trump, but I do kind of respect yep. that he doesn't like that he's not a slave to politicking. Yeah. Like like um political correctness. Ron DeSantis just looks like he has like a guy up his ass, like, you know, yes. moving his mouth for him. Like yeah. that's the vibe I And get. the guy's got like Tourette's, so his <laughs> his wrist is shaking around, so DeSantis always has to be like this. Hey, listen, man, Tourette's isn't funny. <laughs> He says after laughing. <laughs> okay. So what is going on around DeSantis? Last week, we talked about how the people uh, that are running his campaign, the Never Back Down Super PAC, is pulling uh, canvasser, canvassers out of Nevada, and he's basically giving the state up to Trump. Um, so not only is he already giving up states to Trump, he has also lost many of his donors. Of the top 50 donors that contributed up to $160,000 to Ron DeSantis's 2022 gubernatorial re-election campaign, fewer than one-third, 16 people, have contributed to the Never Back Down Super PAC. Um, another eight donors have contributed to DeSantis' presidential campaign directly, but still, that is less than half of the total donors that supported him last year. God, 
God, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> your own people don't even want to give you money anymore, dude. They're your guys. Yeah. They're your dudes, and they don't give a shit. It's brutal. Uh, it's just so funny. This is somebody, okay? Uh, one of the donors. I think Ron DeSantis has done a terrific job as governor of Florida, and I've been, and I've been as, as I think, you know, a big supporter of him in that role. I just think Nikki Haley probably has the best chance in the general election. I think everyone is trying to sort things out. We got to win. That's what we've been saying on the show. Yeah. We've been saying Nikki Haley is the person who's going to take down Biden. If these people who are funding Ron DeSantis get their head out of their ass Mm -hmm. and they realize that in mass like this guy did, Biden is in trouble. If all this money starts going to Nikki Haley and people start jumping off Ron DeSantis' sinking ship, I mean, the Republicans have a shot. I do wonder if all this money initially got funneled to DeSantis for the reason that one he would still appeal to the base because of his policies. Mm-hmm. And two, he could, he is puppeted. Right. Right. So all these donors, right, that their investment could pay off specifically for them. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's part of it. And I wonder if then someone like Nikki Haley, they look at her and she's, they're like, yeah, she could pay off too. Yep. And she might actually win. And she Maybe. might actually win. So Muppet, Meatball, Ron DeSantis, uh, Ronald um, is not going to be president ever. And it's just funny to see so many people who have supported him for so long realize, oh my God, wait a second, this guy is an idiot. It's crazy because every video I see of him, <laughs> I think uh, he's digging his grave deeper. I've never seen a video of him and I was like, oh wow, that's going to boost him in the polls. No. Every time I've seen him on screen, I'm like, oh man. <laughs> oh god oh god i'm watching a train wreck <laughs> i feel so bad for this guy <laughs> yeah get him imagine, a psychiatrist imagine he runs again in 28 oh my god please no i don't think he will i think he's he's gonna be one of those guys who after he's governor he's gonna be in the senate forever you think he's gonna go to the senate forever because he's got enough of a name notoriety and like true. these republicans they actually do think he's been a good governor of florida true so That's he's true. gonna be a romney yeah, I think that's. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. All right, now I want to talk a little bit about a very interesting bipartisan alliance that might be forming in the Senate. Mm. So Josh Hawley, he is a senator from Missouri, has proposed an eighteen percent credit card interest rate cap. Um, he's a Republican, and he wants to cap the rate that credit cards are allowed to charge for interest. Now he is introducing this legislation. Um, in the, what's so interesting about this is that Bernie Sanders recently, with AOC as a co-signer in the House, proposed a very similar piece of legislation that would cap interest rates for credit cards at 15%. Josh Hawley says the government was quick to bail out the banks just this spring. He continued, referencing the now liquidated Silicon Valley Bank of California and Signature Bank of New York, but has ignored working people struggling to get ahead. Setting rates on credit cards then, the Republican said, would be a fair and common sense way to give the working class a chance. And I think it's so interesting that there is now this possible alliance between Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders, where this is a very liberal, very progressive policy that we could really look at and say, okay, this is a, we can form a populist majority and really have this bipartisan solution. Yeah. And, you know, this is the type of bipartisanship that I want to see, bipartisanship that's going to benefit the working class. 
it's funny. This is this is exactly the type of thing that a partisan news show wouldn't report on. Right. right? Exactly. Because it doesn't it doesn't help either side. It doesn't stoke the anger. Exactly. Right? What is the incentive of a Fox News segment to say, "Oh, look at Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders having a similar alignment"? What's yeah. the benefit of MSNBC tying Bernie Sanders to Josh Hawley? Mm-hmm. There isn't any. If your goal is to soak partisan. Um, is to stoke partisan anger. Yeah. Because that isn't the goal of the show, we're able to see, wait a second, there's a lot more crossover than you think. Yeah. Whether or not you're in favor of the interest rate cap for credit cards is a different thing. But it is interesting to see that there is a bipartisan alliance over some of these more working class issues. Yeah, there is kind of a, there's a horseshoe effect here, right? Where as, as the sides get further out from each other, they actually start to get closer in some areas. Exactly. Exactly. Now, what is the effects of an interest rate cap on credit cards? I think I am fairly in favor of capping interest rates at a certain percent. For the majority of the history of the United States, most states limited interest payments at 6%. From, 77, from 1776 up until the 1900s, basically all interest was capped at 6%. In the early 1900s, um, more deregulation started to happen in a couple of the states and raised the cap to 11 or 12%. The next big event happened during the night during 1987 when the US Supreme Court decided that national banks can export their state interest rate law to other states to do business. So because South Dakota eliminated its interest rate cap completely all credit card agencies moved in, based themselves in South Dakota, and then were able to export this interest rate-free cap to the rest of the United States. So this is a fairly new development in the history of the U.S. Mm. starting in 1978. Before then, this was not something that really happened, mm. right? Um, Do you think, was that because the government was worried about taking advantage of these consumers yeah, to this extent? It, it was it's actually a mixture of two things. It's a little bit of consumer protection, but it's also very religious. Um, America is a very Christian nation. Yeah. And uh, that makes us very anti-usury. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we do not like the idea of this type of money exploitation yeah. from a religious perspective. So a lot of the most religious parts of the country were the ones who had the highest usury laws, which are now the most Republican. Which is so funny because we're just we're talking about like like populists, right, coming mm-hmm. together a little bit. Um, the fact that kind of really hardcore liberals come together on with with highly religious people on not wanting to high of interest rates is also interesting. No, it's so interesting, and I think again, this is a great working class majority that can be formed here mm-hmm. with poor working class religious people and poor urban, younger, not-so-religious people who are having similar struggles across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is something to be said about the effects of capping credit card interest interest, Um, because the truth is it will lock some people out of the market completely. Some people who do need access to credit won't be able to get it if the credit card company can only charge 15% interest. Mm -hmm. The only way that the credit card can fathom giving money to a person of high credit risk is if the interest rate is 30% mm-hmm. and they make money off of that person. Um, is there something wrong with the business model that we just outlined? Possibly, mm-hmm. right? Is there something wrong with somebody making money off of someone else's continual economic desperation? Yes. Well, this, yeah, this becomes really interesting to me because 
it, it's like I it becomes a really systemic like really quickly as I think about it, it becomes a super systemic issue mm-hmm. because I generally like no I I don't want people to have to borrow money at a 30% interest rate right but what if if they need that money to buy food after not eating all day yesterday because they didn't have the money for it I want that to be able to happen well then this is what gets into it yeah this is the effect so now when you take away that 35% credit card that Mm -hmm. somebody might need to feed a family or something they are more likely to go to third-party, non-reputable sources for that loan. Yep. Whether that be a payday lender or what I'm more interested in in this case, pawn shops. So the IMF did a study um, about Cambodia's recent um, interest rate cap. Mm. And the IMF was looking at the effects of the number of pawn shop provided loans before and after the interest cap went into effect. And after the interest rate cap went into effect in 2017, um, loans provided by pawn shops jumped from 40% all the way up to 160%. Not percent. 40. I'm oh, sorry. Reading, yeah. 40 sorry. million US dollars. They quadrupled to like yes. 160 Thank million. You. Thank you. So the pawn shop was now absorbing that credit yeah. that people couldn't find. Mm-hmm. And the rates charged by the pawn shop could be worse than 30%. In the United States, if you go to a payday lender, you might be charged an annual APR of like two hundred percent interest. Wow! If you take out a credit, if you take out a payday loan. Oof. Now, Bert. Now, and I will say, Bernie's bill, Bernie Sanders' bill, also attacks the payday loan industry mm. and caps their interest as well, limiting people's ability to get at these certain loans. That does say to me, like these people just aren't—they're not going to get any loans, right? Right? Because because how desperate do you have to be? To go into one of those places and ask for a loan. Everybody knows that that payday lenders are there to prey on the desperate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's like the whole idea. Yeah. Now, what I found is that these payday loans, specifically in New York, don't actually go towards food mm-hmm. most of the time. Most of the time, these payday loans do go towards alcohol. Okay. Most of the time, these payday loans, like areas where payday loans are, are directly correlated with more... Drug uh, use. No, no, no. Oh. Um, it, well, it might be, but that's not what I'm trying to say. Okay. The the stores around them will see a exponential boost in business after a payday loan store opens up right next to it. Okay. So it's like this convenience factor, and they don't really recognize what they're doing. I don't th- believe that it's a ne- an out of necessity thing. That okay. I think it's the availability of it. Interesting. Yes, that's how I view it. Okay. I might be wrong. Um, but I do know that it's highly uh, stores that are next to payday loans are highly correlated with increased money or increased cash flow. Okay, yeah, this is where like it gets I too don't, into the I weeds. don't have a knowledge base, so like I'm I'm speculating. But I would, from very uh, anecdotal knowledge, I would think that there are convenience stores, there are liquor stores that are generally in these areas. Yes. Um. So it does make sense, and in that case, I kind of am. I mean, like we we just talked about how uh, for the child tax credit, mm-hmm. right? Joe Manchin makes the argument that people are going to use that money and go buy drugs and alcohol, and they don't, which is why we think that people should be given the child tax credit. Well, for seeing that for payday loan places, um, people use that money to go buy alcohol and drugs, then yeah, I, I am okay with capping interest rates so that those places can't prey on people who are 
using the money for these unproductive, self-harmful purposes. Yes. And now my opinion on this will probably change based off of that data. Yeah. From what I've seen is, is that the payday loan taken out most likely and most frequently gets spent on, on consumables that are not beneficial to human development. Yeah. Okay. If I, if evidence shows to me that changes that, mm-hmm then my opinion may change based off of that information. This is also an an example of a policy. The reason that I said that I think it's so systemic is because it's a policy that seems to work really well with a more robust safety net. Yeah, totally. Right? Because if you don't, if you already know that people are supported in their payments for their housing and their payments for food, then you don't have to think about the contingency of what if they need this money to Great buy point. food for their family. Fantastic point. Right? So if you have that strong safety net, absolutely lower these interest rates, right? Don't allow these these payday lenders and other credit card, just normal credit card companies to to prey on people like this. Yeah, I mean, 30% interest on a credit card is pretty standard for a young person. That yeah. was my interest rate for a long time. Totally. You know, Um, I want to read this one paragraph from the International Monetary Fund study. Um, Abusive and irresponsible lending practices, such as lending without prudent regard for repayment capacity, um, deceptive terms, and unethical repossession techniques often cause more damage to poor borrowers than high interest rates. Mm. Further protecting consumer and preventing household indebtedness will require lender discipline and financial literacy among borrowers. That's a heavy lift. This will also require strengthening consumer protection law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Yep. A solid regulatory framework is needed in order to avoid regulatory arbitrage amongst the different players, such as microfinance institutions, pawn shops, as we've talked about, and informal money lenders. This is to ensure more transparency and healthy competition, which helps improve efficiency and lower interest rates. But the main thing that I like here that I think is important to recognize is that the term when they say unethical repossession techniques often cause more damage to poor borrowers than high interest rates per se, mm. right? So what they're saying there is all of the real negatives of defaulting on this debt is actually worse than not having the money at all. Yes. Yes. The interest itself isn't the problem. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um So going forward, it ends like this. Going forward, if the interest rate cap is to be maintained to protect consumers from usury rates, the non-binding cap coupled with stronger consumer protection safeguarded seems to be a better alternative. Mm. And I think that's what Bernie is pushing for in his bill by going after the loan sharks and the payday lenders specifically. The pawn shops is a different beast. I don't even know how you would go about regulating something like that. That's so difficult. Yeah. I mean, that gets granular there. But maybe that just means it's it's a human desire to go into debt i mean i don't know what that says about us but I, I, it is something that i want to stop i do not think credit cards should be able again this is a new experiment 1980s is yeah. when this all started yeah i don't even think about it as a human desire to go into debt i think about it as a human desire to do things yeah, to start true. things right regardless of whether you actually have the means within societal bounds to do them yeah 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 Okay, and I think we have one more current event. Yeah, one last current event, which I just want to put on our radar, is the DOJ versus Google. It's a huge antitrust lawsuit that is beginning. The funny thing, so the the actual case, like the court trial, began earlier this week. This case was initially brought in the last few weeks of the Trump administration by Trump's DOJ, and we were just talking about the potential alliance between Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders, right? 
this is an example of where Trump's populism potentially be having areas of overlap with liberal populism, Definitely. with progressive populism, right? Like part of his platform in in being like, let's go after the big guys, it actually had a little bit of a payoff here. So the DOJ is alleging that Google has used unfair practices to cement the dominance of its search engine. The best example of this is excluding competitors by striking a deal with Apple to be the default search engine on Safari on iPhones. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, yeah. Google actually pays Apple about $18 billion per year wow. for that positioning. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so that's going to be the court case that we're um, looking at. I don't want to spend too much time on this because the trial hasn't happened yet. And I think there's going to be a lot more to discuss once the results are out. But this is just to put it on everyone's radar. Um, one quote that I have here, which I'm really hopeful about, uh, one of the prosecutors said, I do think it is the beginning of the new era in policy. It's the beginning of hands off of the tech sector, or it's the end of hands off of the tech sector. It's probably the beginning of a decade of a series of lawsuits against companies like Google. Hell yeah. Give them hell. So the prosecutors have said that really any option for punishment is on the table including potentially breaking up Google's business to make its search business different from its Android business, different from its advertising business, and so on and so on, which is really exciting. That is really exciting. Talk about breaking up market power, man. That is exactly what we want to see. Yeah. That is beautiful. We'll see these courts historically, like this DOJ and FTC and SEC of the Biden administration, they have been going after a lot of these anti-competitive mergers. Um, they haven't had a ton of success, though they have had some. So it'll it'll just be interesting to see. It'll be a good benchmark. Where are the courts True. on antitrust law, right? Yeah. What kind of legislation might, might we need to enable changing uh, or to, to enable dismantling these bloated monopolies um, and getting in the way of mergers? So yeah. we'll see. We'll see. All right, everyone, it is time for our deep dive. Deep dive. So we've teased this before. We are doing part one. We're going to have to do multiple parts. Yeah. I hope you know this. This is going to be a long one. Yeah. Yeah. This is part one of climate change. Um, a little bit of a beast here. Yeah, a little bit. So fortunately, we think we've really narrowed this first part. That it's going to be a manageable conversation, Yeah, which actually makes me really relieved. Uh, we're just talking about the science today. So there are still climate change deniers out there. We are clearly not that. If you've watched the show or heard, like, probably we probably bring up climate change like twenty five percent of our segments. So true. I mean, it's probably like we we. I think we both in agreement. It's the biggest issue. So. It, yeah, it's yeah. the issue of our times. Um, it's the it's the White Walkers in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna talk about what is the science. Why does it show that climate change is caused by humans? Um, and what does it say about how climate change is going to affect the earth? I think that's kind of yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, where we're going to be on this. That's so perfect. I'm gonna I'm gonna take us back for a little history lesson. I love it on how this happened. So back in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, people had measured that Earth's atmosphere was much warmer than they would expect based on our distance from the sun, and they hypothesized it was because the atmosphere trapped heat so 
there was one guy that came along, John Tyndall. He was a British scientist who had read another guy, an Italian scientist who has a great name, Macedonio Maloney. That is an awesome name. Yeah, yeah. Macedonio Maloney had done work on the absorption of heat by liquids and solids. Made a lot of progress on that. And John Tyndall basically wanted to do the same thing for gases. This came after a bit of his own history of studying ice structures on glaciers and mountains, um, which made him think about the conduction of heat through ice. And also, he was on top of mountains and glaciers, and he was like, it's way colder up here, and there's more ice up here, but we're also closer to the sun. So how does that work? Mm. So what happened is he built on his own the first ever spectrophotometer. This was a way to measure the amount of photons, the amount of heat that was absorbed by a gas. And at first his results were a little bit unclear, but he was trying to he was trying to specifically measure the absorption of heat by water vapor because this is when like the steam engine is starting to become popular and he checks carbon dioxide which becomes very important obviously as well within 10 days he had all the evidence he needed to show the greenhouse effect he found that carbon dioxide ozone and water vapor absorbed more than 80 percent of the radiation that passed through them um, which is absurdly more than the other naturally occurring particles in our atmosphere of oxygen and nitrogen um and so I, I got down so much that I got into the chemistry of like, God, why, you know so much more than me. why did these compounds, like, why did they absorb more of the heat? What happens? So if you've ever taken chemistry, you know, CO2 is an oxygen atom that has two single bonds to carbon, right? Water vapor is an oxygen atom that has two single bonds to hydrogen. And because of it being three atoms and having the single bonds, it's kind of more like it can warp itself into more different geometries it's kind of like more wiggly almost and that the atoms and this is hard because because atomic structures are really defined by quantum physics and i don't want to get that deep but what happens is when these particles are irradiated they can warp themselves they can move into more different patterns which is them taking on the heat, right? Mm. Them doing that mechanical motion, that is them taking on energy. Right. So that is the absorption of heat energy. And then what they'll do is they'll they'll emit some of that back into space, but they'll emit a lot of it back into the Earth. Right. And that's what warms our atmosphere. Wow. Um, specifically, one other point that I want to make here is, is why, why doesn't that happen kind of to all atmosphere just as the sun comes in? Well, what happens is, as the sun comes through our atmosphere, it comes in a different wavelength that it bounces off the earth. When it bounces off the earth, it bounces off as infrared radiation, which are longer wavelengths, which are also absorbed worse by these oxygen and nitrogen atoms. So the difference with these oxygen and nitrogen atoms, O2 and N2, their O2 is two oxygens double bonded to each other. Nitrogen is two nitrogens triple bonded to each other. So rather than doing like the, the wiggly motion where they're, they're a lot looser and they can take on more of that energy. These oxygen atoms are kind of just stuck. These nitrogen atoms or molecules, they're stuck like, like a wishbone almost, right? There's very little rigidity. So they can like jiggle around a little bit, but they can't really take on, they can't mm. make the bigger motions. Right. So they can't take on this energy. So Tyndall didn't know all that, obviously. That's taken a bunch more experimentation. But the point is, 
in all of that additional experimentation, this this effect has been repeatedly shown over and over again. You can literally do this at home. You can take a water bottle and you can blow one up with the carbon dioxide from your breath and you can take one that just is full of air and you can screw the cap tight on it. And if you heat both of them up and feel them, you will feel that the one that you blew carbon dioxide into is hotter. Okay. So I'm just, I'm just trying to make this as obvious as I can because like it is as long as you understand like the corollary to this, that when human beings burn fossil fuels, yep. they release carbon dioxide into the air uh, because, because fossils of course are made, are made of carbon, right? And fire like comes from burning oxygen. Um, I'm literally getting <laughs> as basic as so I can hard. possibly yeah. be. Yeah. Um, it should be extremely obvious why this happens. And the science is literally like 150 plus years old. Uh, so that's that's kind of where I would start. The the one other thing I would mention is there's another sci- American scientist named Eunice Foote who made similar discoveries, but she wasn't able to follow them up as well. And she didn't have the same technology or documentation. So Tyndall is usually the one credited with it, but they were kind of working at the same time. Um, and didn't communicate with each other. So I just wanted to mention that. That's awesome. That's amazing. Because <laughs> I, I went into this as honestly more of a layman. I, I was just like, look what I can see around me. Like, this is what I can see. Right? Sure. You went into the, the, the molecule example, which I'm so glad you did because I just learned so much from you. I'm glad. But yeah. now, like, what is evidence that you can see that yes. you can look up and you can just visualize, okay, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. So Greenland ice sheets, right? Yep. They have decreased by how many metric tons? They've lost 4 trillion metric tons since 2002 on Greenland ice streets. 4 trillion metric tons. Gone. That Sorry, that that's truly shocking and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> you, I actually thought like you were like, I thought like you had a toothache or something. That you made me a so little emotional. Pain. 4 trillion? 4 trillion metric tons. Of oh my god! Greenland sheet ice gone. Oh my god! Almost five. It's actually five trillion. Oh my god! No, yeah, it's five trillion metric ton. Okay. Okay. So that that's one. Now let's look at yearly global surface temperature of as plotted against carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. It is perfectly correlated. Um, you have to take my word for it. Okay, just please. No, just... I have something on this as well. Okay. Yeah, in 1958. So I, again, I, I just have the history. Like this I have like a awesome. timeline here. Awesome. Charles Keeling set up an observatory in Mauna Loa, which is a volcano in Hawaii, to measure the CO2 concentrations. Um, And so he proved that they are rising over time, obviously, and heat was rising perfectly along with them, global Uh, temperatures. It's amazing. Yeah. And obviously, you know, how many parts per million are we at now? 500-something parts per million of carbon dioxide? Oh, I can tell you that I think it's like 500 million, no, no, 500 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right Mm. now. For the vast majority of Earth's history, not human's history, Earth's history, it was one, I shouldn't, wait, that's actually not true. The vast majority of the last 700,000 years, Mm. carbon dioxide has been between 100 and 200 parts per million. And and even that, like, might not sound like a, like, it is a big difference, obviously. Might not sound like a ton. One other thing that I didn't mention and that I'm going to bring in here about Tyndall, he wrote, what he found is that the difference in the, the mechanics, basically, of these particles means that Every atom, every singular atom of water vapor or CO2 in the air absorbs heat 16,000 oh, no. times more effectively than oxygen. Oh, my God. 
So that's why the jump from 200 to 500 is so catastrophic. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. Why? What do you mean by water vapor? Does water vapor have the same effects as CO2? Like, how did, I don't know. Yeah, pretty much. Really? Yeah. So. It has the same greenhouse effect. What's water vapor? Is it, water vapor. It's the, just water. Okay. It's just water that's evaporated. So if I boil water in a pot mm-hmm. and it goes up in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. that causes emissions that hurt our climate? No, right? Because it gets put into clouds. It, it'll put, it'll be put into clouds. And yeah, that's the thing. So like our atmosphere, because of rain, Right. We don't really have to worry about oh. water as much. There are other reasons we have to worry about water. Right. Because of hurricanes, which I'm yeah. going to get into. Yeah, yeah. I have a whole other thing on that, yeah, too. But okay. So that that's so when he says water vapor and carbon dioxide, right, the water vapor isn't that big of an issue because it rains back onto the surface. The carbon dioxide staying in the air. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, yes. Okay. So then if we look at average global sea temperatures, mm-hmm. which is super important to everything, yeah. um, they have been rising steadily uh, since the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, are now one degree uh, above average from its 1971 to 2000 average. Yeah. So we're just, yeah, we're just, and then what is the, that's we, so fast. No, that's so fast. So fast. No, it's so fast. And that's kind of like the main point. Like, yeah, that's the understanding that that is, like, that's everything. Okay. Like, yes. Well, this is, I think the point to make here is like, people will say the climate always changes. Like over time, scientists say that the climate always changes. And it's true. Like, like global temperatures oscillate, what, six, seven degrees Celsius up and down. Mm-hmm. That's over millions, millions of years, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. We're talking on a span of decades. We're talking about different orders of magnitude, which is, why we know so obviously that it is because of human activity yeah we're looking at one point what the 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 paris climate agreement's goal is a 1.5 celsius increase from the industrial revolution yes 150 years for 1.5 degrees celsius is insane that that means we're on a pace of 600 years to do the whole cycle even and we're saying at least 600,000 years is what the cycle usually is yeah it's a nightmare, guys. Uh, it's scary. It's fucked up. It's really scary. It's really scary, guys. It's really scary. So I, do, so give me more examples here. So okay. I, I have yeah. the ice. I have the t- air for air temperatures. I have the sea temperatures. What else? Yeah. Got? Well, I was going to say you talked about the Greenland ice shelves. I was going to talk about the Antarctic ice shelves. Yeah. Several have collapsed or disintegrated. I, Wordy, Larson Inlet, Larson A, Larson B, Jones, Wilkins. That's I just named six different ice shelves that have collapsed or disintegrated. What what happens here is right. The obviously water temperatures are warmer and the pole temperature, the temperatures at the poles are warmer as the global temperatures warm up. So there's more melting and slowly they crack apart and eventually they get to this tipping point where they just disintegrate. They just Uh break apart. I think that's a really good, um, kind of a good transition point because our whole climate is kind of like that as well. True. The whole earth system is like this where we have these tipping points that we're going to approach at which point we're not like, we know that we'll never go back to them within our yep. lifetimes or several, several generations. Yep. Yep. Um, I read a little bit of a paper on this. I, I probably should have done more, but the question is a great, the best example I can think of is all of the polar ice caps melting, right? That's, that's a tipping point that people that scientists are worried about is hitting around 1.5, which is why the Paris climate agreement is set at that point. Once we are 
done once we don't have the polar ice caps uh they're they're not coming back like even like we can we can even if we do a ton of carbon capture and like take carbon dioxide out of the air and we cool the earth like they won't reform within the next 100 years or 500 years or 10,000 years and it's going to take 100,000 plus years one of the really dangerous parts of losing the polar ice caps is that the polar ice caps reflect a lot of light mm-hmm. and keep the uh, cool the entire earth much cooler because it's reflecting so much light yeah with those things gone the oceans are just gonna keep absorbing all of that heat totally which is going to cause more and more massive weather events mm-hmm. and that's another thing that we see a lot of we see a ton of more massive weather events we have so the power disparation uh dissipation index um tracks the categories of danger of storms over the years Mm. okay and then that is perfectly correlated with the sea surface temperature so this is another example where we know that the sea surface temperature is causing climate change we know that sea surface temperature is now correlated to these bad storms so when you see like all these massively bad hurricanes that are getting worse and more frequent on the news you know that is a direct cause of climate change yeah and it's not because you mentioned correlation i i was able to get into why the exactly causation. it is causation beautiful is because so hurricanes, see i'm not smart enough for that <laughs> hurricanes form as spiraling winds draw moist air to the center right and so they kind of work like inertia, right? The more moist air, the more water vapor particles are going in this cyclone, the faster it goes, right? So the more the wind goes and the more it picks up, the more of that water that it picks up right off the surface of the ocean. So they get bigger and the rainfall becomes heavier and thus the flooding becomes worse and the destruction from the wind becomes worse, right? So the warmer that things are, there's a reason that the hurricane season is like, late summer right it's because the ocean has warmed up over the course of the summer and then it's time for all the hurricanes to come and form from that warmth uh yeah and so that's why more more and more of these storms are just going to be more extreme we just saw one devastate southern florida which i'm I'm forgetting the name of already i don't even remember no um another one's coming up if it hasn't hit lee lee is coming to massachusetts actually Oh, really? Yeah, it, it could hit us. It might still veer off into the ocean, but we'll see. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's hurricanes. Yeah. We we also have wildfires. Wildfires? Uh, Canada? I mean, yeah, this Canada. is the craziest wildfire season in Canada. And California. And California. Which is, and it's, again, I, I really did nerd out on this. I looked up a map of, like, jet stream patterns. Yes, the, it's all about the jet streams, dude. I have is. another friend of mine who's really into environmental science. Is mm. what he does. And he's always been scared about the jet streams for years. Like, we were in high school, and he would talk to me about this. I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> well, as far as, like, with the jet streams as they are right now, they happen, like, the map, I can't really describe it with words. I would suggest you look it up if right, you're curious. Right, like it goes through, like, the one that I know the best. Like it goes from like the Gulf of Mexico, and then the water from the, the the air from the Gulf of Mexico warms all of Europe. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's part of it. But for wildfires, it's the the dry air that comes from the North Pole that actually is what causes these really bad wildfires oh. because the it's bringing more cold, dry air. What happens is it comes down from north, like down into eastern Canada, and it also in the west it dips all the way down into California. Oh. Um, and so that's why there's, that's why since overall temperatures are still rising and the air is getting drier, mm-hmm. all of this, all these forests are more likely to become tinder. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And it can spread that much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then heat waves, obvious. Obvious. Yeah. Obvious. Um, I had a couple more things about the effects of climate change, mm. but I want to keep that for next week. Okay. About like the humanitarian impacts of climate change. I yeah. think I want to keep that for next week. Yeah. I think that I think that should be... That should be part two. What we do next week. Kind yeah. of like where is going to be the most affected. Yeah. Which really quick is something that we should have brought up in the current events, but I'll mention. I don't know if you've seen about the flooding in Libya. I have not. So Libya just got devastated by flooding. Oh, jeez. Um, it's in the eastern part of the country and... There are entire, literally entire, like in the northeastern part that's on the Mediterranean, entire villages have been swept away. The death count is already in thousands. Oh my god! Um, this is this is after torrential rainfall. It's a perfect example of the present dystopia of climate change that we are already living in. Um. And obviously, all of this should be a call to action as we continue to make calls to action. And so many people continue to make calls to action for climate change. We have some ways that we're going in the right direction. There are some ways that the Biden administration specifically could do more. Declaring a climate emergency is really the most obvious. Vital. Uh, but I think we'll want to get into the politics of this more in a different deep dive. That'll be number three. In coming weeks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we're done on this really sad, devastating note. But yeah. um, hopefully there'll be more optimism next time. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys.